Turn with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We'll be reading verses 12 through 19. John 12, verses 12 through 19, and looking at the triumphal entry. Give attention to God's holy word. John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he'd found a donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason the people also met him, because they had heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we look unto you as servants, look unto their master, asking you to have mercy upon us and to favor us with your presence and word this evening. We pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit that we might understand your scriptures and in understanding your scriptures might behold your glory. We ask this, Lord, in the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. Well, as we come to this section of the Gospel of John, we come to one of the most famous events in the life of Christ. This is an event that's recorded in all of the Gospels, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And as we come to this passage, we have to be aware that sometimes we read the triumphal entry with a misunderstanding. I think sometimes we, we come to this passage and we think, yes. The Lord Jesus is being praised. The Lord Jesus is being exalted. He's writing in triumph. But one of the things we have to be careful of is that we don't make the same mistake that the Jews of this time made. You see, Jesus is a true king. Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. But unlike the kings of men... Unlike even David's claim to fame of conquering his enemies with the sword, this king comes and his triumph is going to be accomplished in a particular way. The triumphal entry in the life of Christ marks the beginning, as it were, of his progress to the cross. And the the triumphal entry happens at a certain time in the life of Christ. You may remember throughout the book of John and in the other Gospels, in the early part of Christ's ministry, he's always telling people, keep it down. Don't tell anybody. Don't do this. 
Earlier on in the Gospels, we're going to see that they tried to take Christ by force and make him a king. The reason for this is that the people wanted Jesus to be a certain kind of king. But Christ's kingdom and his victory as our king is a different kind of kingdom, and it's a different kind of victory. And as we enter into this passage, this is the first time that Christ allows himself to be acknowledged as king, publicly and without any reservation. Because at this time, as Christ is entering Jerusalem, his hour had arrived. The hour that Christ had been preparing for his entire life has arrived. And now that this hour has arrived, the hour of the Lord's crucifixion, he shows himself to be the king of Israel, but he does it for three reasons. The Lord Jesus Christ, with his hour having come, shows himself to be the king of Israel to comfort his people, to fulfill the scriptures, and to provoke his enemies. His hour having come, the Lord Jesus Christ shows himself to be the king of Israel to comfort his people, to fulfill the scriptures, and to provoke his enemies. And as we look at this passage, we're going to notice these four things. In verses 12 and 13, we see that his hour had come. In verse 14 through 16, he, I'm sorry, verse 14 and 15, he comforts his people. In verses 16 and 17, he fulfills the scriptures. And verse 17 through 19, he provokes his enemies. Verses 12 and 13, his hour had come. Verses 14 and 15, he fulfills the scriptures. Verse, I'm sorry, comforts his people. 14 and 15, comforts his people. Verses 16, uh, verse 16, he fulfills the scriptures. 17 through 19, he provokes his enemies. Now, before we get into the details of this passage, these three ideas may seem disconnected. They, they don't seem to logically go with one another. Comforting, scripture fulfillment, provoking the enemies. These seem like disconnected ideas. But remember one fundamental thing about the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ was appointed to die. Christ was ordained to be the high priest to offer the atoning sacrifice. And ultimately, it is only through his atoning sacrifice that his people find comfort, that the scriptures are fulfilled, and it is only through the hatred of his enemies that he can be lawfully crucified. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ did not commit suicide. He was murdered by the Pharisees and the Romans. And in order for his death to be atoning, it had to be this way. And so all three of these reasons have to be fulfilled in Christ showing himself to be a king. Well, we begin with his hour having come. At uh, earlier parts in the Gospels, John is at pains to write. There's certain instances where the Jews are ready to stone him. And then Christ, it says that Christ was able to escape because his hour had not yet come. At several points in the Gospels, chapter 8, chapter 7, chapter 5, the Jews are ready to stone Christ, but Christ escapes because it was not the right time. Now, 
it is the right time. Look at how John introduces our passage. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast. Remember the context here. In chapter 12, verse 1, we read that it's six days before the Passover. Moving up just a little bit in chapter 11, verse 55, the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So the time period that we're dealing with here is the Passover week has begun. The, the Passover was the highest celebration of the ancient nation, and it was at the Passover that the sacrificial lamb was killed. The lamb was killed, its blood was drained, and all the people ate of the lamb, signifying their union with that lamb. Well, when Moses instituted the Passover feast and the Passover ceremony, it was in commemoration of the Exodus, but it was also in anticipation of Christ's death on the cross. And so we need to think about the Passover this way. The Passover was an Old Testament sacrament. Sacraments are visible signs of spiritual realities. And so from the days of Moses up until the days of Christ, the sacrament of Passover was looking forward to the time that Christ would fulfill it. Now we are at that hour. Now we are at that Passover. Now the hour of the king has come. Everyone is going up to this feast. Everyone is going up to Jerusalem. And this multitude, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches off of palm trees, went out to meet him, and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now, the people probably don't understand everything that's going on here. The people, more than likely, don't understand what Christ has come to do, but they do understand one thing. This man has raised the dead. The, the miracle of Lazarus's resurrection has spread far and wide. Remember last week, we looked at the, just the previous section. A great many of the Jews, verse 9, knew that he was there, they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. That resurrection had spread throughout all Judea. And almost every single one of the Jews who came to Jerusalem knew that this has happened. And this mighty miracle has provoked them to recognize Christ as the King of Israel. In recognizing Christ as the King of Israel, they quote Psalm 118. Turn with me to Psalm 118. Psalm 118, specifically verses 25 and 26. Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. They quote verse 25, and it reads this way, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Now, in John's gospel, as he records this saying of the people, he records it in Hebrew. They say, Hosanna, but Hosanna is just the Hebrew word for save now. That's what that phrase means. So when they say Hosanna, they're quoting this passage from Psalm 118. It's translated in English in your Old Testament, but the Jews would have said this in Hebrew. They're quoting this passage and they're, they're rejoicing 
that the Lord is going to bring them salvation through this one that comes in the name of the Lord, a, a son of David as, if, as it were, but they neglect to read further on. Look at verse 27. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You see, in the context of Psalm 118, this, this one that's coming for salvation, this one that comes in the name of the Lord, he's going to perform a mighty salvation, and whatever that salvation is, it involves a sacrifice. It involves the shedding of blood. This is fundamentally one of the things that the Jews misunderstood about their king, but Christ understands it perfectly. So the Jews know that salvation is at hand. They don't understand the salvation. They hail Christ because his hour had come. Well, Christ, allowing himself to be called king, the king of Israel, agrees with the people. This is very interesting. This is the only time in the Gospels where people who hail him as king publicly in a crowded space at the highest feast of Israel that Christ allows it. He doesn't stop it. And he does this to comfort his people. Notice now in verse 14, he is active in agreeing with the people. You know, before we get into this, just to understand what's happening here, sometimes we like to go to the park as a family, when we have a little bit of cabin fever, especially when the kids are sick, we like to get out and go to the park. Sometimes you go to the park and you'll find people uh, throwing the football or tossing the frisbee or kicking the soccer ball. And what happens in those situations, if they want you to play with them, sometimes they'll just kick it right to you. They'll put the ball in your court, as it were. And if you want to play along with them, you don't have to say anything. You just kick it right back. And then you keep going back and forth. You're in agreement with the activity. Well, likewise here, the people have come to Jesus with the palm branches saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They've kicked the ball into Jesus' court, and Jesus now kicks it back. And he begins to engage with them in this activity. Notice what verse 14 says. Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. Notice the activity of Christ. He's active in finding this donkey and sitting on it. The other gospel writers describe how Jesus sends his disciples to go find the donkey and bring it to him. There's even more activity. John simply here is describing the details that are essential to the story. Jesus finds the donkey and he sits on it. This action by itself wouldn't mean anything. This action by itself is not that remarkable. Some, some interpreters try to say the donkey was the Cadillac of the ancient world and Christ is riding high in the caravan. He, he's, he's in a uh, suburban with bulletproof glass. He's riding in a presidential car. That's not what's going on here. N none of that's what's going on here. The reason Christ does this primarily is to comfort his people. Notice the verse that John quotes. He sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Notice the verse that's quoted here. The king comes, and the way that you know the king is coming is that he's sitting on a donkey's colt, a young donkey. That's how you know this is the king. And when the king comes, 
you no longer have reason to fear. You do not need to fear because your king is in your midst and he'll be marked by riding on a donkey. Well, when the people call him the king, Jesus obliges and kicks the ball right back. He gets on the donkey and he rides into Jerusalem to the praises of the people. It's important the way this passage is quoted. Turn back to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 is what the uh, evangelist quotes here. Zechariah is right before Malachi, second to last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. The language in Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, John doesn't quote this passage word for word. But what John does do is quote the context. Notice in the prior passages, Zechariah is promising that God will deliver his people from the enemy. Look at what it says in verse 8. I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes. The essence of this chapter is that Zechariah is promising God's people, when God does his work of salvation, you will be delivered from oppressors. You will no longer have to fear the enemy. John quotes this and summarizes the context by saying, Fear not, O daughter of Jerusalem, your king is coming to you. And so Christ engages with the people. He fulfills the scriptures in order to comfort his people. Your Christ is a king. The Lord Jesus whom you trust in is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And because he has come, there is no reason for God's people to fear. You may have heard other preachers will say this. It's a good line. The the one command that is repeated most often in the scriptures is fear not. Fear not is the thing that God says most often to his people. Now, there's a reason he says this to us. We are like sheep, skittish, nervous, worried about the future, worried about the enemies, worried what might come tomorrow. And many of us live with fear that is so burdensome we cannot function. But the Lord reminds us here, with the coming of our king, there is no reason to fear. Fear not, your king is coming to you riding on a donkey. But notice also, I I really want to edify your souls with this. Understand what Jesus is doing to comfort the people. He is not just telling them with raw authority, don't fear, I'm God, I'm telling you not to fear. That's, That's not how he operates. The Lord Jesus takes the description from the Scriptures and He fulfills what the Scriptures are saying so that the people would not fear. 
Well, what does this mean for us? If you want to see the Lord manifest His presence, if you want to know the Lord's presence in your life and in this church, you have to look for the descriptions in Scripture. You have to look for the ways God has promised to show Himself to you. In Zechariah, He promised Israel, the king will come riding on a donkey. Christ, to comfort His people, comes riding on a donkey. Not on a horse, not in a chariot, not walking with two feet. He comes riding on a donkey. Now, if you didn't know that scripture, this would not seem very remarkable to you. If you didn't know Zechariah chapter 9, it would just be, well, he wants to ride a donkey, I guess. He's tired. And you would have missed all the comfort that Christ is offering to you. Brothers and sisters, we need to know the scriptures. As the book of Hebrews admonished us this morning, we need to not be dull of hearing because there are many things to be said about Christ. There are many things to be said about our high priest, but if we're not paying attention, we'll miss them. So Christ shows himself to be the king of Israel to comfort his people, but also to fulfill the scriptures. Verse uh, verse 16, notice that his disciples once again don't know what's going on. They are a little bit dense. His disciples did not understand these things at first. The disciples are watching all this happen. The people are praising him. There's palm branches. The Passover feast is about to happen. Christ gets on the donkey and rides into Jerusalem, and they're left scratching their heads. What is going on here? Keep reading. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Notice the second reason why Christ shows himself to be the king of Israel. It's to fulfill the scriptures. I think sometimes when we, when we read the gospels and we hear about prophecy being fulfilled, we, we tend to put the cart before the horse, as it were, or the cart before the donkey, as the case may be. We, The fulfillment of the Scriptures is one of the most important things that Christ came to perform. Even if nobody was saved, even if no sinner repented, Christ still had to come and fulfill the Scriptures. Well, why is this? The fulfillment of the Scriptures is a matter of God's own honor. You know that in the context of the New Testament, when they refer to the Scriptures this way, they're talking about Old Testament prophecy. To fulfill the Scriptures means to fulfill the Old Testament. And the Old Testament really is the writings of the prophets. Deuteronomy chapter 18 gives us the law of the prophets, as it were. And in the law of the prophets, we, uh, sorry, 17... No, that's not right. Well, I have the wrong reference. I apologize. Um, In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses gives the criteria for a true prophet. And he says, if somebody rises up and predicts something that does not come to pass, that man is a false prophet. And if his prophecy does not come to pass, you should not believe him. You should not follow him. Now think about all the prophecies of Moses... All the prophecies of David, 
All the prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Jonah, Zechariah, Malachi, all of them are predicting the day of Christ. Until Christ comes and gets on this donkey, some 400 years since Zechariah made the prophecy, the question mark is in the sky. Is Zechariah a true prophet? He prophesied something that had not yet come to pass. So Christ must come to fulfill the Scriptures for God's own honor and for the ratification of the Old Testament. Notice also, our understanding of the Scriptures doesn't happen until Christ is glorified. You ever noticed in Old Testament prophecy and even in the life of Christ where he's, he's sort of hiding his identity. He tells the leper, don't tell anybody about this. Isaiah and some of the other prophets will receive a word of prophecy, and then the Lord will tell them, seal it up, don't tell anybody about it. Write it in a book, seal it up, and put it on the shelf. The reason for this is that all of prophecy points to the Lord Jesus Christ. And until Christ has fully accomplished his work, the scriptures are uh, inscrutable. They, they can't be understood. They're like a closed book until Christ has accomplished everything. Peter makes this point in his first letter. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Starting in verse 10, he says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was, uh, uh, who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow to them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Notice what Peter is saying, that the prophets themselves who received the prophecy had to search diligently to try and understand what was happening, to try and understand what God was indicating in the Scriptures and it was not until the Holy Spirit sent from heaven caused the gospel to be preached, the truth of this salvation and the reality of this salvation, that people can understand this salvation. This salvation is so glorious, it's tied up with God's honor and the salvation of men that angels desire to look into these things. So we need to ask ourselves a question then. I am not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. You are not prophets, nor are you sons of the prophets. However, if men of the caliber of Moses and the caliber of Jeremiah searched diligently to understand this great salvation, when all they had was bits and pieces of the truth, how much more ought we to diligently search the Scriptures who have the entire puzzle put together for us. How much more knowledgeable of salvation and of the Scriptures ought we to be now that Christ is glorified? We ought to be more knowledgeable 
than we are at this stage in our development. We ought to know the Scriptures like the back of our hand, as they say. You know, one of the things they said about some of the Reformers, some of the Reformers, they would study the Scriptures so much, many of them, Theodor Beza for one, had the entire New Testament memorized in Greek. He had the whole thing in his mind in Greek. Now, I don't expect you all to do that. I do expect you to have a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures and to know what is going on in the Scriptures. Understand why I'm saying this to you. Understand why Christ was doing this at that time. It is for your comfort. It is for your edification that you understand the Scriptures. I'm not laying a burden on you to weigh you down with yet another duty. I'm encouraging you to know the things that God has revealed to you. And as you know those things, you will grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you a practical way to do this. Read larger portions of Scripture. Read longer sections of Scripture. I I challenge you. I, I encourage you and I also challenge you, sit down and read the book of Romans. Read it in one sitting. Probably take you about 30 minutes. Read the book of Ephesians. That'll take you about 15. Uh, there's, there's other charts out there about how long it takes to read certain portions of the Scriptures. You can read one of the Gospels in probably about an hour and a half of dedicated time. Now, maybe you can take an hour and a half at one chunk. Maybe you can only afford 30 minutes. But 30 minutes over the course of three days, you've read the Gospel of Matthew. I encourage you to start reading the Scriptures this way. Read longer portions, and you'll be surprised at the things that you learn and the things that you find out. Well, Christ came to comfort His people. He came to fulfill the Scriptures by showing Himself to be King. But the last thing He does in this passage is provoke His enemies. Now remember, as I mentioned earlier, Christ did not commit suicide. He was murdered by the Pharisees and the Romans. In order for him to be murdered, they had to hate him. And in order for their hatred and their anger to be stirred up, he provokes them with this triumphal entry. Look at what the passage says in verse 17. Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. The idea here is that as Christ is going up to Jerusalem, the crowds are already in Jerusalem. And they're coming out to meet Jesus. But Jesus is traveling up to Jerusalem with a crowd of his own. There's a group of Jews around Jesus that are traveling with him. When these two bodies meet, the people who saw the miracle give testimony that the miracle actually happened. They bear witness to the resurrection of Lazarus. Now remember, in this context... The resurrection of Lazarus was yet another reason why the Pharisees wanted to kill Christ. Look at what it says uh, in verse 49 of chapter 11. Well, going back to verse 45 of chapter 11. Many of the Jews who'd come to Mary and seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them that went away to the Pharisees told them of the things Jesus did. 
The chief priests and Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The Pharisees were already plotting to kill Jesus. Now with the resurrection of Lazarus, they're given motivation, as it were, to kill Jesus. Verse 49, then Caiaphas, the high priest, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. So the narrative goes on, and then in chapter 12, verse 10, it says that the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So Jesus has met the crowd from Jerusalem. His followers are bearing testimony to the miracle of Lazarus, and this is going to motivate the Pharisees even more. Continue reading, chapter 12, verse 18. For this reason, the people also met him, because they heard that he'd done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now we know that the Lord Jesus is provoking his enemies at this point. This is the first time that he's openly declared to be a king. He doesn't put a stop to it. And Christ knows that this will provoke the Pharisees to wrath. Christ knows that this will lead to his death. Because you see, Christ knows that as our king, the way that he comforts us, the way that he fulfills the scriptures, is by dying on the cross. Turn back to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9, the prophet writes about this deliverance that the king will accomplish. Zechariah chapter 9, Rejoice, O greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Keep reading. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Notice that this dominion and this deliverance is based upon the blood of the covenant. And so this king, as he comes, comes to die. So Christ comes and provokes his enemies by being declared a king. Now, in our day and age, we have to explain this a little bit more because we live in the day of being nice. We live in the day of being polite, of not causing offense. We, we live in the day where the, the Christian faith and the Christian life, and in many ways, the king of Christians, the Christ himself, is put into a domesticated box. And, and we tend to think that righteousness means never offending anyone or never causing someone angst or provoking someone in this way. But you see, what Christ is doing is not sinful for two reasons. One, what the people are doing is true. 
Christ isn't lying. There's no falsehoods going on. He is the King of Israel. He is worthy of all this praise. They are not doing anything wrong. In another gospel account, the Pharisee will come to Jesus and say, why don't you do something? Stop these people. And Christ says, if you tell them to stop, the Lord will raise up sons of Abraham from these stones. The Lord will cause the rocks to cry out and glorify me. So on the first case, Christ is doing nothing dishonest. This is the absolute truth that the people are proclaiming. So it's not sinful what Christ is doing. The second thing to recognize is that when we are pursuing a righteous course, the wicked will be provoked. When you do righteousness in your life, whatever that may look like for you right now, the wicked will be provoked by it. And sometimes the wicked need to be provoked. Many times our relationships and the tensions in our relationships exist because somebody is living in sin, somebody knows the truth, but they don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to provoke a conflict. Conflict is uncomfortable. Conflict is not fun. Conflict is conflict. And so the one that has the righteousness, has the truth, is avoiding bringing up the conflict because they don't want to cause a provocation. They don't want to cause a scene. But brothers and sisters, we need to recognize that when sin is present in our lives, when sin is present in the lives of our family members, of our church, of our business, whatever it is, sin needs to be flushed out. Sin needs to be provoked so that it can be dealt with. Now, I'm not saying tempt people to sin. I'm not saying be provocative for the sake of being provocative. But what I am saying is that when you do righteous things, people will be provoked, and that's not always a bad thing. In fact, many times, that is a good thing. Christ does this to provoke his enemies, not only to flush them out, but as I mentioned earlier, to fulfill the word of God and bring about his perfect plan. Because until his enemies act out, there's nothing he can do. He's not going to commit suicide. He has to be murdered. And so these Pharisees have to be provoked. And this is why Christ shows himself to be a king. To conclude this and to apply it to our lives, first, Christ is your king. And you can take comfort in that. As Zechariah says, and as throughout the scriptures it says, fear not, Christ is in charge. There's many reasons to fear today. The Russians are at war. The president is a child. The, 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 the society that we live in seems to be falling apart at the seams. There's many reasons to be afraid. There's 87,000 more IRS agents now. There's a reason to be afraid. But because Christ is the king, you do not fear. Christ will protect you. But understand how this protection comes and understand where this comfort comes from. It comes from knowing the Scriptures. It comes from knowing the Word of God, not only in the broad sense, but also in the details. The King will come, and we do not need to fear, because he'll be riding on a donkey. Minor detail, easily overlooked. And finally, 
Just as Christ provokes his enemies to accomplish the will of God, it is right and proper for the church in doing righteousness to provoke the enemies of Christ. You see, our calling is not to be nice and never cause offense. We're told not to be offensive, but our calling is never not to provoke offenses or to do things such that nobody will take offense at it. Our calling is to follow the Lord Jesus and to do right no matter the cost. I encourage you in your lives, if there's an issue in your life or relationships, you may need to provoke it. You may need to bring it up. You may need to have that conversation with grace, patience, not offensively, but righteously and honestly, just as your king does. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and his entry into Jerusalem, and that he has come to fulfill all of the scriptures and to comfort us through his fulfillment. We ask you that by your spirit you would give us the faith to draw this comfort. You would expand our hearts to uh, know your scriptures in more detail and more fully, that we may indeed be comforted by the way that you work. And we pray, O Lord, that your enemies would be provoked by righteousness that they would manifest themselves, that the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, would either slay them in conversion or drive them out and slay them in judgment, that your church might be pure. We pray, Lord, that you would hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen.